Hey everyone, it's Ari Wasserman here. This is the National Championship Preview Show, but before we get to the show, I wanted to talk about some breaking news that happened on Thursday night. Kansas State starting quarterback and high-profile quarterback transfer Will Howard announced that he was committing to Ohio State. Howard went 12-5 and at Kansas State in two years as a starter, you know, and off and on. He led the Wildcats to a Big 12 championship win over TCU in 2022. A lot of smoke was that he was going to be considering USC or potentially the NFL draft. But after Ohio State's Cotton Bowl debacle, they were able to convince Will Howard to come to Columbus to try to save Ohio State's current situation, to try to get the Buckeyes back on track after losing three straight games to Michigan and not winning the Big Ten championship since the 2020 season, which is pretty crazy to think about. Um, We went into the Cotton Bowl, Ohio State's Cotton Bowl loss to Missouri, thinking that um, Devin Brown had a chance to reassert himself as the future of this program. After Kyle McCord left Ohio State after his first year starting, the former five-star prospect now is going to be at Syracuse next year. Devin Brown, who didn't start a full game or play a full game at any point in this previous season, was supposed to have the Cotton Bowl to prove to Ohio State fans and to Ryan Day that the program is in good hands moving forward under his leadership. Unfortunately, he got injured very early in the game. True freshman Lincoln Keenholz came into the game, and Ohio State was unable to move the ball effectively the entire four quarters. They did not score a touchdown, so that was probably the worst possible scenario for Ohio State, given the fact um, that Ryan Day not only lost the bowl game, but didn't have any film to evaluate on Devin Brown and whether or not um, he was the man for the job heading into the summer. Um, Kyle McCord left Ohio State because... He was not guaranteed the starting job, so I would be surprised if Will Howard was given the same guarantee, but sometimes with this kind of thing, you just kind of have to read the writing on the wall. I don't know that he would be coming to Ohio State if he didn't feel like he was going to be the starting quarterback, but of course, like always with Ohio State, there's going to be a quarterback competition. Um, Devin Brown presumably will stay with the program, compete really hard over the summer and into fall camp, and hopefully um, he can avoid an injury when fall camp comes around and Orion Day can be put into a situation where he can make the best decision for him and him, him and his program. Ohio State also has five-star true freshman Aaron Nolan coming into the program. Um, Ohio State's reputation before the season was that it was the go-to place for every high-profile quarterback in the country uh, because of Ryan Day's work with Dwayne Haskins, Justin Fields, and then lately uh, C.J. Stroud, who now looks like one of the best rookie quarterbacks in the NFL. Um, that is kind of taken a step back because Kyle McCord, who had a few years in the program, as a five-star quarterback, didn't develop the way that we thought he would and ultimately transferred and then transferred to Syracuse. Um, We'll see if Aaron Oland can throw his hat in the ring and be ready to play in year one. Um, My thought process is it probably will be too soon. Lincoln Keenholz, the player who came in for Devin Brown in the Cotton Bowl, um, has a bright future, but it just still looks like he's a year or two away from developing into the type of player that that Ohio State needs to start at that position. Um, This is all very interesting because it's a critical moment for Ryan Day. Um, Ohio State has not won the Big Ten, like I said, since 2020. They've lost three in a row to Michigan. They haven't won a playoff game since 2020. And Ryan Day, the one thing that we knew he would do was have a great quarterback, and Ohio State did not have one last year. And now you're turning into a 2024 season where uh, you're going into a year where you need to beat Michigan, you need to get back to the playoff, and you have to have elite-level quarterback play, and they're turning potentially to Will Howard uh, from Kansas State in order to do that. So um, this is not Kansas State for Will Howard. There's going to be a ton of pressure. It's going to be one of the most high-profile discussion points during the re- during the offseason headed into the regular season, and 
Um, it's just an interesting marriage between player who wants to win national championship and coach who has to get the the program back on track. So now um, we have some other transfers that we're going to discuss. We're going to talk about the college football playoff, uh, national championship game. We're going to preview the Michigan-Washington game, all those things on the regularly scheduled until Saturday preview show. Call the Sunday Sound Off podcast phone line. 316-462-9852. Again, that is 316-462-9852. Uh, you can leave a voicemail. We will play your voicemails on the show. I know we've been promising to do that. We haven't really gotten to it, but it's been a very busy few weeks. It is going to be a staple of our offseason, and we love having you guys um, along for the ride. Uh, and also sign up for the Until Saturday newsletter. We get your daily fill of college football news delivered right to your inbox, inbox from the uh, great staff at The Athletic. You don't have to be subscribed to The Athletic to, in order to get this newsletter, though I think you probably will be shortly after signing up for it. So all the links to everything is in the show's description. And Dave, what the hell is Ole Miss' star running back doing in the portal? I thought they were buying right now to compete for a national championship. Uh, and a big piece of their offense that helped them get to double-digit wins this year is now in the portal. I thought that was the exact opposite of what I would have expected. TBD. I, I've been saying for the last year and a half, these portal decisions are always interesting, um, especially when you have big name guys that go in the portal. Obviously, he's not a candidate for somebody who got pushed out. Um, that's definitely not the case, but I'm sure there's a lot of factors, um, carry numbers, scheme, money. There's a lot of things that go into some of this. Um, mm-hmm. And so we'll find out, you know, this is pretty new. Um, we'll find out kind of more of the details eventually, I suspect. Um, you know, he posted uh, on social media uh, his announcement that he is going in the portal. Uh, as most of those announcements go, we didn't get a lot of insight into that, but very surprising. And as far as how big of a loss it is, I mean, he's definitely a great, a, a really, really good back. Um, but I think that if you're going to pick one position to lose a guy in, I mean, I guess running back would be up there um, because I think you can still uh, do well um, and and still thrive uh, with a back that might not be quite as talented. But it's a big loss. It's a big loss. I don't think it's a, a game-breaking loss for Ole Miss. I wouldn't rule out the possibility maybe that he comes back, but this is um, this is what the sport is right now. Yeah, I think I saw some jokes of people saying that Ole Miss is over the salary cap, which kind of made me laugh. But also, too, I wonder if they'll do anything that they can renegotiate to get him to return. Um, Obviously, that's always a possibility in this world now, too. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it is an interesting dynamic that you're talking about this, like an NFL GM in terms of replacing a a running back at the uh, college level and how easy that is. I think that also could play a factor in whether or not he commands the type of NIL money, if that's the case that he thinks he's entitled to. Um, and, And whether or not the position group and the position scarcity um, have an impact on what a program is willing to pay you and whether or not Ole Miss would be willing to overpay uh, to keep somebody who rushed for 1,158 yards and 15 touchdowns this season. Like, I, mean, I, I don't think, think that replacing him is easy. By well, I think if you're back, if you're back and you're in the portal and you're looking around, I don't see a lot more situations that are more attractive than that. So, I mean, the, the whole thought of the offseason was going to be Ole Miss loading up to win a national championship. And losing the most recognizable piece of your offense, honestly, uh, is the unexpected nature of this business, too. And it's like I think people um, are going to learn this as we continue to go on. But, you know, I I saw the message board geniuses Twitter posts 
of all the Ole Miss fans saying he better not come to Oxford and what a traitor. I lost respect for him and all this stuff. I think that there still is a large portion of the fan base, Dave, not just at Ole Miss, but in college football in general, that still views college football players and where they go to school as love for the university that they went to and the embodiment of the movie Rudy. And I think as we found are going to find out more and more, um, Quid John Judkins might love Ole Miss and had a great experience there and produced at a high level, but that doesn't always mean that financially it's the best place for him. And um, all those things could, you know, again, we're all speculating, but all those things could come into play with very good players leaving good situations for better yeah. money. Like that is a part of it too. Yeah. So quickly too, um, as we, we'll keep you guys posted on that story. It's going to be something we talk about a lot in terms yeah, of a lot of unanswered whether, questions there. So. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're speculating, but as we get more information, the, the conversation will evolve into future episodes. But Alabama has nine players in the portal, including QB Eli Holstein. I think it was a top 100 player. That's a, a pretty interesting situation. Wide receiver Malik Benson, wide receiver Shaz Preston, tight, uh, tight end Miles Kettlesman, uh, Terrence Ferguson, the offensive lineman, I think was another top 100 player. Alabama center Seth McLaughlin, the, the, the center that was having a hard time snapping the ball in the Rose Bowls in the portal. Uh, Earl Little, a DB, uh, Christian Story, a DB, and then Monkel Goodwine, another defensive lineman. So um, a, a big piece of Alabama's roster is hitting the portal. And uh, former Washington State quarterback Cam Ward declared for the NFL draft. If you guys were wondering what took him so long to pick a school, it turns out he's picking an NFL team. And then uh, Oregon State... Clemson alum, no, not alum. You can't say alum uh, in college. Previous the transfer, tiger, previous, previous tiger, <laughs> previous beaver. DJ Uyunglele has committed to Florida State, which is an interesting development as well. So anyway, okay, why don't we get into the national championship game? It's always important to touch on news early on in the show, um, but we are going to be giving reasons and uh, for both teams winning and losing. Mm-hmm. Let's start off with the first reason that Washington is going to win um, Michael Penix and Washington's skill position talent. Um, and I think this is the most obvious one because Michael Penix is a left-handed Heisman finalist and Romo Dunze and um, Jalen McMillan and uh, Jalen Polk. Um, really good players that nobody can cover and Penix puts the ball where it needs to be. I think this is the most interesting matchup in the entire game. Can Michigan's defense slow this offense? That's sort of the the million dollar question. I think the chemistry that you have, and, and we'll get into more of the coaching confidential stuff later. But you talk to coaches; I mean, they could not say enough raving things about Michael Penix and this offense, and his anticipation, his accuracy. I mean, multiple coaches said he's like the most accurate quarterback that they've ever seen in terms of ball placement. Um, and you know, one of the coaches I talked to was like seven on seven in the summer has got to be crazy because when. He's like, if you if you turn on the Washington tape and you go watch them play, a lot of the time when he when you look at the release and you hit pause on the tape, the guy's not open. <laughs> like he's not open at all. He's like, but Penix is putting the ball where it needs to be, uh, where it's the only place this receiver can get it and throws him open. That takes experience. That takes anticipation. That takes accuracy. That takes a a mental understanding of the game that is very, very advanced. And part of that is natural skill. Part of that is playing for six years. And part of that is just learning the game um, and understanding this offense and understanding where to go and, and having a ton of trust in the receivers. And also, Ari, did you see the the uh, highlight tape going around that is reversed, that is Michael Penix's yes. right-hander? Yeah. That looks like a combination of uh, Philip Rivers and Lamar Jackson, does it not? 
So what is the reason why it's easier to see as a right-hander? Is it because we're so used to right-handing? Or, yeah, we or don't see a ton of lefty quarterbacks. So, like, looking at the mechanics... I don't know what it is about the human brain because his Maybe body is some... still his body is still facing the same directions yeah. depending on which way he's going. Yes. But when you watch it in reverse, he looks like a better quarterback because oh, it's just the way our brains process the information. Yeah, you have a better understanding of the mechanics of like, okay, what does this really look like? And I think the the one thing that I took away from it was, and you kind of know the seeing him is there's not a ton of lower body. Like that he needs to have to get a ton of velocity on the ball. A lot of that is just arm strength, just slinging it, and that is well. The one really throw that impressive. he had, uh, I think it was the third quarter or the fourth. I don't remember that touchdown pass where he delivered it in that tight window. I referred to it on Twitter as a prison, yeah, prison cell window throw. Um, <laughs> he put it right in the middle there, and it was perfect. And it's like when you're watching it with him as a right hander and the score upside down. It was just like, wow, holy. It's like, I don't know. It just feels like you can see it better, even though you really can't. A little can't. bit. I don't um, know. We need some neurologist or psychologist or somebody in the chat. to. There's a lot going like, on in my brain that we need a neurologist for, let me tell you. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Um, the thing I don't know, um, and I'm not looking forward to, but thankfully I'm a college football reporter and it doesn't matter, is this man has been injured in his career. He's a little bit older. He's been to multiple places, and they are going to pick him apart uh, during the NFL draft process. And my whole thing with the NFL draft has always been, and it feels like to me, and maybe it's because I'm so focused on college football, um, that we have spent so much money in the NFL on scouts and analysts and film and combines and pro days and all this other ancillary stuff that the film has actually become secondary. And it's like, he might. I thought he saw that he got like a fifth round grade. I don't know if that's improved. He's in the not last going few in the months. fifth round. I think so. Like, the, the NFL conversation is interesting, but what it comes down to with the quarterbacks, I'm going to say specifically, is when you are, we'll say first round quarterbacks. I think anybody would probably say he's a first round talent, right? But that other stuff does matter because when you're giving a guy a first round grade or you're willing to wait, I say waste use a first round pick on a quarterback. The idea is we want this guy to be our franchise quarterback for the next 15 years. Right. And the combination of age and injury history, it's not that I don't think people, I don't think people think he's going to be good. It's that does he have the staying power that makes it worth spending a first round pick on? And if you say no, I don't know how, you know, that, that that's indefensible. Like I totally get that. Like in the NFL, he's not going to have the same offensive line. He's probably going to get sacked more than 11 times next year like he has this year. He hadn't taken a lot of hits this year. That's a big reason. I mean, he's not much of a runner, even though he did run in the semifinal. He yeah, doesn't run they, much. Yeah. Well, those called runs, that's not something they've done at all this year. I, I, don't think it inc- I don't think we got in the piece, but in talking to some coaches, they were like, I was surprised to see that because they haven't done that all year. We've looked at Washington tape. They, they don't do that. Um, that was a wrinkle that they saved, obviously, for the championship or uh, for the semifinal. So... I get. I don't have a problem if the NFL don't want to use a first round pick on him because that's how they view it when you're talking about quarterbacks. Now that said, I do think as long as he is healthy, he's going to be an effective NFL quarterback. Okay, let's go a little bit more statistically on this because mm-hmm. I like to dive in a little bit more. But Washington's explosive play production uh, passes of more than 16 yards and rushes of plus 12. Um, from True Media, the Huskies have 150 total explosive plays this season and 16. 16- 
16.4% of their explosive plays, that's the, the the play rate, excuse me, that's the eighth best in the nation. 11 explosive plays versus Texas. So like that, to me, it's like a playing, a team that plays at a high level is going to pop you for a big play, mm-hmm. you know, one out of every eight plays or whatever that is. Uh, it's a bad at math podcast still. Um, and uh, that is a really big thing. So here's the flip side to it. Washington hasn't played a top 50 pass defense in Stanford in 2022. So I wonder how much that'll, that's a good stat that Cam found. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Uh, Michigan's defense ranks second in the country in pass defense, allowing 150 yards per game. And they've only allowed a seven touchdown passes all season long. So that I think we're going to get into a little bit of this later with Michigan's lack of explosiveness, but also, um, they haven't played a lot of ton of offenses either, as Mr. Big Ten West hater Dave Ubbin will tell you. Um, <laughs> so I think a lot of this is matchups too. And, yeah, um, you know, the cornerbacks on Michigan's team, the athletic second team All-American Will Johnson and Mike Sanderstell are very, very good players. Um, Johnson has been targeted 32 times this season and has allowed 15 catches, uh, 46% for 256 yards and zero touchdowns. Four uh, of those catches were Marvin Harrison Jr. And Sanderstell has been targeted 41 times for 2020. For 22 catches, 53%, 344 yards and a touchdown, but also has five picks. So they're very effective defensive backs. Um, do you think that Washington's explosiveness is going to win out, or do you think Michigan's defense is going to prove to be elite? I think I know what question, what, what answer you're going to give. It's not that I think Washington is just going to light up Michigan, but I think having a couple extra explosive plays can change a game. And I think in general, like that Jalen Polk one that they had in the first quarter of yeah, the Texas that was game, huge. That was it huge. was a, it was just a regular pass play right downfield, but he caught it, did a spin move and ran 40 yards into the five inside the five yard line. Like mm-hmm. it's that type of thing that those great receivers do, but go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're good. And so at the end of the day, this is still football and this is still a game in which the quarterback is touching the ball on every play. I think we're in agreement that Washington has a sizable advantage at that position. And that decides a ton of games. It's why they give these guys all the money. It's why they're so uh, treasured in recruiting. It's why they're so treasured in the draft and in free agencies, because it's very valuable. It's the most impactful position on the field. And Washington is good enough up front to slow them down. And I have a lot of questions about Michigan's skill position talent. Um, If they had, like a game-breaking-ish receiver, I think we'd feel differently about this. I mean, we've had this conversation all year. You know, Roman Wilson, Cornelius Johnson are good players, but they're not Jalen Polk. They're not Jalen McMillan. They're not Romo Dunze. Different level of guys. Uh, And so I think that you can make enough plays to make the difference here. Uh, But, it. I mean, this is what's really interesting about these games is I'm trying to think of the last time we had a national championship that was this contrasting in styles. I've been, I was talking to some people, I, I'm still annoyed that we didn't get in 2011 LSU and Oklahoma State because that would have been probably the closest thing. You bring this up a lot, yeah. Because it's annoying. Like, it's, that was ridiculous that we had to watch Bama and LSU play again. Uh, two teams that we already saw play and nobody wanted to see the, so-called game of the century again, and then LSU couldn't cross the 50-yard line again. Wasn't it 6-3, to three, the final score of that game? The first one was. It was 21 nothing in the second one. Oh, yeah, that's right. 14 yeah. nothing for most of the game. Nobody wanted to see those games, but these contrasting styles are interesting because it un- it's unpredictable. You don't really know how Which these are going to match gonna up. Which side's going to win? Because the immovable object or the... Yeah. yeah. Washington hasn't played a defense like this 
Michigan hasn't played an offense like this. this but is this is interesting here, Dave. Uh, wide receivers against Michigan's secondary, Marvin Harrison Jr., obviously had the best game of the year. He's the only receiver to go over 100 yards a season against the Wolverines defense. And the next closest are Christian Dremel from Rutgers, who had 85 yards, and Caden Prather from Maryland, who had 81 yards. Uh, the only team on Michigan's schedule, including Alabama, that has a player that can even be in the same sentence of Marvin Harrison is this Washington team. Well, so I think that, I, well, that, that I, a team I that's... Think, I, I, as respectfully as I can say this, I don't even care about the receivers. you got to have receivers, but like... No, I disagree with that. No, 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 no I no. disagree with that. No, because here's the deal. Ohio State didn't have the quarterback to get them the ball. That's why they lost to Michigan. That's why the Penn State game was not the prettiest game in the world. Kyle McCord was not that guy, okay? Alabama, they don't have the weapons, and Jalen Milrow is a good player. He's not Peyton Manning, okay? He's not the greatest passer we've ever seen in the world. And and as far but as Washington Maryland... Washington both. That's what I'm saying. And Maryland, I'm not sure they can block them. And so they even they even put more points on the board than people thought they were going to in that ball game. I mean, is Talia the best quarterback they played all year? I would say probably. Uh, probably, yeah. Yeah. So they haven't really played a team that has both the, the targets and the guy that can get them the ball. But so when you have a, a transcendent receiver, you can still go over 100 yards, even if your quarterback is mid. That's like Marvin that's Harrison. That, so, so do you see that case, as a point against Michigan or for Michigan? No, I think it's a point against Michigan. Yeah, I'm with I you think on that. This. But also, too, I think in general, take the teams out of the equation. I think having a dynamic passing attack usually is the force that wins. Having a great defense in college football doesn't usually um, win the advantage between great defense, great offense, because I think the offense just have, has advantages in the sport. Yeah. Um, I think it's easier to move the ball, but I, I think that Washington will score. Yeah. Um, we'll score in this game. I don't think that this is going to turn into a 6-3 matchup. I think that Michigan's going to have to score on offense. Which I think is a nice segue to Michigan's first reason for winning. Um, that would be their excellent offensive line play. And defensive line play. And defensive line play. I think, you know, I've uh, this team wants to mash you and and... I don't want to lean too much on our coaching confidential, but I did just spend like, you know, the last couple days messing with it. One of the coaches pointed out like nobody in the Pac-12 is patient enough to just smash you over and over. It's basically just Oregon State was really the only team that would come close to doing that. And even if it's not working, Michigan's going to continue to establish the run. You got to hold up against that. Washington has not played a team like this. And so if you get if you're getting six, seven yards a clip. That's a problem. And and Texas was getting that. Did it. They yeah. did it. But then their backs, in part because they didn't have Jonathan Brooks, were coughing the ball up. So that changes a game. You know, you look at that fumble late. That was huge. That was massive for them. Um, so if, if Michigan has the same kind of success that Texas did running the ball with Donovan Edwards and Blake Horam, it's going to be an issue. Um, defensively, I think it's funny, personally, Michigan fans seem to be offended at the quote from our story that Michigan is just Texas with better DBs. I assure you, that was a compliment. Like, Texas has two of the best defensive tackles in the country, very similar to Michigan, does not necessarily have a game-breaking pass rusher, really good, sure-tackling linebackers, but Texas is not great at covering. I think they were 92nd uh, in one pass, pass I think they are 49th overall uh, in passing, uh, in, I think, opposing passer rating. Michigan's a much better defensive 
backfield. Now, some of that, as we have alluded to on this show, perhaps juiced the backcourt by playing a lot of Big Ten teams, but they're really good. They have really good DBs. Will Johnson, Mike Sanders. But the one thing that those Big Ten West teams that you hate like to do Mm-hmm. is try to play smash mouth football. I think that's part of the reason why you don't like watching it. Mm-hmm. So they are more equipped to being in a physical trenches oriented game because that's literally the only thing that Iowa brings to the table, right? That's the only yeah. thing that, you know, a lot of the Big Ten West teams do. So Iowa demonstrated that a defense could get after J.J. McCarthy. Yeah, um, I think they've had four sacks in that game. And of course, you have to acknowledge um, All-American Zach Zinter is out for the year. It was a, a yeah. really tough injury in the Ohio State game. Um, Fifth-year seniors, uh, Carson Barnhart, who moved to right guard and right tra- right tackle. Uh, Trente Jones uh, were great, uh, really great against Alabama. I think that they reshuffled their uh, offensive line, and it was really good. And here's the thing about the lines, though. The defensive line for Michigan uh, sacked Jalen Milrow 16, or six times. It felt like 16. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how much of the snap. I thought that Michigan's defensive line kicked the crap, kicked the crap out of Michigan's off. I mean, well, Alabama's yeah, offensive line. Yeah. There was a lot of that. I think a lot of it was scheme. Shout out to Jesse Minter. Fantastic game plan. I mean, Alabama's offensive line, this has been a two-year issue for them. Their communication is a problem. And when they had those five-man protections, Jalen Milrow had no hope. And Alabama kept running it and kept running it. And it's like, how many times do you got to run a five-man protection before you realize this is not working. This is not working at all. And for whatever it's worth, Michigan does not do that. Michigan hardly ever does five-man protections. It's a lot of six and seven-man because they know they have those special receivers. There's a ton of max protect stuff off of play action in Michigan's offense. Um, and so you you get defenses off, uh, off kilter. You run a bunch of tight sets. It makes it very difficult to cover because you're having to cover guys from very different angles, do a lot of different things. But those six- and seven-man protections is a big reason why Mike Penix doesn't get touched. And then you have these receivers that can't be covered. And if you give them four or five, six seconds in the in the uh, you know in the pocket with those receivers running wild, I mean, it's not hard to see why Washington is doing the things that they're doing. And I also don't know if there's a metric for this, but Michael Penix also seems to remain composed, calm, and collected, and efficient under pressure and in I the face of pressure. I think that's just playing college football for six years is what that is. Yeah. Some of that's innate. But it, it exists, experience. though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's an, that's an important piece to it, whereas because I, I would One of the things I saw and that coaches called out, too, is there were probably three or four times in that Texas game where they had a free rusher at Penix. They heated up the offensive line. They, got, they, they schemed up a free rusher. And then he just dipped out of it. <laughs> Shook a guy. One quick step. Not a lot of wasted motion. Reset your platform and fire. It was Tom Brady stuff, honestly. Like he's not a guy that's gonna flush out of the pocket and outrun a rusher. Like the amount of subtle movements that he did in the pocket to avoid getting hit and avoid getting sacked was really that was some pro stuff right there. Yes. Um, Michigan's defensive line has produced the fifth highest pressure rate in college football this year. Mm-hmm. And they are dogs. So, mm-hmm. you know, the Joe Moore winning offensive line is going to have their have their uh, their test for sure. Well, I think they would say they just had their test with Tavondre Sweat, the Atlanta Trophy winner, and Byron Murphy yeah. is also probably going to be a first-round pick. They have better DBs. They're just Texas with better DBs, dude. <laughs> a compliment. I, I really, like, listen, I know it's been a long year for Michigan. They've been catching arrows from all corners, the cheating Catching stuff, strays, yeah. All that stuff. So I know they're on high alert, but, like, I truly could not believe. 
like, you know, there's a lot of angry Michigan fans at me and Bruce and all that, you know, pe- shocker when people say things that are like honest, people don't love it, but they really got mad about that quote. I'm like, that's a compliment. I don't know what to tell Matt you. Matt is good, bud. Matt is good. Lastly, yeah, sure. just to give them one little sprinkle of affection, uh, they have the eighth ranked rushing defense. They've allowed 93 yards per game and fifth in yards per carry with 3.03. So they've had a very good run defense as well. Mm-hmm. Why don't we go to the next reason for why Washington will win? Experience and weathering tight games. Uh, 13 games in the last two years have been decided by one score uh, within seven points. They are 12-1 and one in those one-score games. Lost to Arizona State 45-38 to 38 last year. They are 8-0 this year, which is why they're undefeated. Um, on one hand, you know, how dominant can you be if you've been in eight one-score games? But how dominant are you if you win all eight of those? And the offensive line um, only allowed three tackles mm-hmm. for loss against the Texas defensive line. So they've also played well in the previous category, too. So This is a real thing. It's a real dynamic. You talk to players, you talk to coaches, like, when you get in tight games... I mean, anybody who's ever played sports or dealt with anything where you your body feels pressure, it changes you. It makes. Is that why you, you do the cold tub? No. What are you talking about, cold tub? You jump in the cold tub. Don't no, you do a little? Not, uh, no. Yeah, you not are. A cold tub guy. You're a holistic no. cold tub guy. Yeah, you Absolutely are. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Co- you're not going to do a tub. plunge. You do it for like a minute and a half. You get out. I've you're, done them in the past. Like, like the feels the one good. Time, it's when your body feels pressure. The one time I've I've done it most recently is I was staying at a house on a lake in uh, Colorado a couple years back, and uh, it was very cold. And we did do lake jumps like every night when it was really freezing. I, there's this place in Dallas called Sweat House, not a sponsor. Wish they were, um, but I went. <laughs> it's like you get your own room where you go in and you have a sauna and a shower, and it's like a vitamin C shower. Like they have like vitamin C into it's like one of those like, like orange juice. You're getting orange juice dumped on you. <laughs> it felt it felt like it, but you go into the sauna for 45 minutes and then afterwards you wipe off. Sauna. I'm not sure. Yeah, you can healthy. you can go in and out. Like I mean, it's oh, okay. it's not like you have to sit there the whole time. But you have your own room that's private. You can sit in the sauna. And I watched the LSU, not the LSU, the uh, Georgia FSU game in the sauna there. And I think after Florida the State game, also watched that game in the sauna. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they were feeling more heat than I was. But then after I did a cold plunge. Okay. And I went into the cold plunge tub at this place. And then you're supposed to like, you know, shower off. And it, it was the worst two and a half minutes of my life that I was in mm-hmm. there. But when I was driving home after showering and getting changed, I was, I felt so good. Like, I think I'm going to be a cold plunge person. Interesting. I have a lot of questions about the. Uh, you feel adult, energized, clear headed. I have a lot of questions like about the adult male body because. Many people were following my my tweet storm on Christmas Eve. I got some comments about this of while I was building a kitchen for uh, my young daughter. Yeah, I, I think did I one too. My, I think I messed up my shoulder. My shoulder has been hurt for like. Did you buy one of those wooden since. ones that you have to assemble yourself? Here's what happened. My wife purchased it, armed with the knowledge that she was not going to have to bear the burden of building. Yeah, it. that's every and wife I on earth. Up yeah. the instructions like two days before Christmas Eve, and I was like. You got to be kidding me. It took me and like did, four and a half hours. I put the kitchen together with my dad, the little mini <laughs> kitchen with the doors and the fake stove, right? And all that stuff. Yeah. It took us three hours to do it together. It was oh awful. My gosh. I was also I too, was flying solo. My number one hot take, and then we'll get back to the game, is if you buy something that requires assembly, can't you assemble some of it? Like it doesn't, you can't no. you ship it? As, not No, I'm saying like the people who make it. 
No, because like it costs too much money. You're just, you're trying to sh- save money. That's the whole thing. It doesn't make any sense to me why they can't like partially assemble the hard parts for you. Like, and I feel like everything is overly complicated. It's just like clip here, clip here, clip here. Like there's too many screws. There's too many steps. The, the directions are never clear. Most of the time it's in a different language. Like I will pay 50 bucks to have it shipped made. You could pay money for people to come build it. It's very I know. Expensive. It's just, I don't know. I, I, I despise it. You feel good when it's done. Yeah. My, my I was child really sweating. does like it. I was sweating. Yeah. Yes. My daughter it's also hard. has been playing in this kitchen for like three days straight. She loves it. Okay. Go. What were we talking about? Oh, the, uh, the uh, human body and being put <laughs> oh, under yes. pressure. Yeah. So anyway, this is a real thing. Okay. If you get in a tight situation and you are able to continue operating at peak performance, this is like, I'm a big golf guy, right? This is the whole Tiger Woods corollary. Okay. Tiger Woods at his prime broke golfers because they're playing with tiger woods it's a big major like people melted when they played with him well guess what tiger woods does he plays golf with tiger woods every single day it didn't break him he was just existing part of that was the insane borderline perhaps abusive stuff that his dad did to him when he was a kid where he like trained his brain and and tiger does some of the stuff with charlie too of like you're just unflappable. And I think when you're in Michigan, you've been in this many tight games. If Michigan's down three with eight minutes left and they're kicking their punting away, they've been there before. Like they're not going to freak out. And Michigan so this is a has Washington advantage. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. And so when you can be in those tight situations and feel the weight of the entire season for some of these guys, their entire life at stake in these next 10 minutes and still be at peak performance, that is a skill and that is a very valuable <laughs> thing in games like this. Because I you know don't what I think, think it is, Dave, a, that you didn't mention? Here's game. what I think it is. Mm-hmm. Not only has Washington been at high leverage moments, but I always think that Kalen DeBoer has the perfect anecdote for whenever they're in those moments, too. Mm-hmm. I think they have a tremendous offensive coach. Um, I think that they have an offensive coordinator that has great design. And yep. Like in that fourth down call that they went for on their own 29, which was my favorite play call, maybe of the last decade. And they had that like backwards. It was awesome. I had never seen that play design before. They had it ready to dial up in the perfect moment. And that's the thing that I admire the most about Washington. And if, you know, we're not going to go into the deep depths of coaching brain, but I think, you know, I've covered a team in my past, Mr. Ohio State Homer, that hasn't really been that imaginative and Mm -hmm. just relies on their talent to win all their games. And I admire Jim Harbaugh for this reason, too. They have an NFL approach to it where they break down their opponent and they break down what they can do. And they have an answer matchup wise in the perfect critical moments to make plays in the game deciding plays. So it's not just finding a way to win in close leverage or high leverage close games. It's also having the answer for those scary moments to make you feel more prepared. Right. Mm -hmm. Don't they what they say? Preparation is the is the grand eraser for nerves. Like you're not nervous because you, you you actually are prepared for those moments, which is a coaching thing too. Like I rolled my eyes a little bit at the notion of this one because Michigan just won an overtime game against Alabama on Monday. So like they also have, and they also were in a close game against Ohio state. Like if they didn't hit Kyle McCord on the last drive there, they could have lost. Yeah. Their last two high leverage games were, were close. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but I also think, 
that doing it eight times out of a 12 game schedule and doing it two out of the last three games is a little bit different. But I also admire Kalen DeBoer um, and his offensive philosophy of trust yourself uh, because we have the answer. That to me is, is the best thing about this. So um, let's go to Michigan's second reason for winning. Uh, we have a pretty long show here and we're 33 minutes in. So let's try to, <laughs> I'll, I'll quit the grab ass here and we'll go right back to it. But um, pure unadulterated dominance this year. This was yeah. your reason. Well, go ahead. Well, Michigan's been more dominant than anybody. And there is a world in which Washington just can't stop them from running the ball. And Michigan puts 41 points on the board and Washington's chasing all game. And, you know, maybe they score, but it's like 41-27. That's a real thing. Uh, that could happen. This is one of the reasons why I am excited to watch this game. And a lot of the coaches we talked to were as well is we don't know what's going to happen. We aren't sure how we're going to match up because these teams have not seen teams like this before. This is going to be new for everybody. And you have first time uh, title participants since the BCS was born. Neither Washington nor Michigan have played for a national championship. So we're getting that aspect of it. But the contrasting styles you know, Michigan has beat the crap out of everybody, and there's value in that too. If you can just be that team, get on top, and just start <coughs> pummeling people, Michigan's done that to everybody. Not everybody. Well, most people. Not the two good teams on their schedule. Are we counting Penn State? Are we? We're I guess we're, a three. Then I guess out? three. They kicked the crap out of Penn State. Yeah, they too. kicked the crap out of Penn State. So we could put Penn State in the mix. Yeah, but I don't think they beat the crap out of Ohio State or Alabama this year. I mean, I guess they did no. in a certain sense in terms of controlling the game. I think they controlled both games, but scoreboard wise, they were close. Yeah. So, like, I have a hard time. Um, I have a hard time with dominance versus crappy schedule. I think it's a very slippery slope. It is because but they they also play were thirty point favorites in half their games. You know, yeah. but I do think that training yourself to to be in those positions is interesting. Now, what I think is also interesting is that the beginning of the Alabama game went pretty terribly for Michigan. They almost threw a pick on the first offensive play, um, which was demoralizing or would have been. They muffed a punt that turned into a touchdown. They were down 7 nothing, And when they weren't dominant, they were also resilient. Yeah. So I think that that also, too, plays a factor into Michigan. Um, their scoring differential this year is... 107 points to 59 points. Um, they scored 107, have given up 59 points um, against ranked opponents, 26 points per game to 14 points per game. Um, turnover margin to a second of the nation in 1.21. 25 forced turnovers, 16 interceptions and nine fumble recoveries, and eight turnovers, five interceptions and three fumbles lost. So they don't turn the ball over very much, and they have a very good scoring differential against ranked opponents. Yeah. all while being very dominant against bad teams. I think, again, if you just look at the totality of the schedule, Michigan's been a better team than than Washington this year. It's why they're favored. Um, and what they Washington has messed around a little bit this year. Um, I'd say quite a bit this year they've messed around and been in games with teams they shouldn't. There is something, impre- like we mentioned before, that if you can manage to win those games, that is something of a skill. But beating the crap out of teams is really impressive, even if that schedule is not the toughest in the world. Now, this has been kind of confusing, guys, because we did Michigan reasons for winning and, and Washington reasons for winning. Mm-hmm. And those reasons are also reasons why the other team will lose. But now we have two reasons why uh, these teams will lose, uh, one for each. First, let's go to Washington's reason for losing, which is protecting leads and playing keep away with injured Dylan Johnson. This means that 
Washington has been up big in multiple games this year and have been able, unable, excuse me, to put those teams away. They blew late leads against uh, Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game in which they even were dominant in the first half and Oregon came back to take the lead. And then, of course, they beat the crap out of Texas the entire second half of that football game. And yet we're still 11 yards away from losing. So, and that, that to me too, it's like the running game scenario for Washington, which is a subcategory of a reason why they're losing is they say Dylan Johnson's going to play. I have my doubts about that based on what I've heard. Um, And if they can't run the ball, even though passing has been their running, Mm -hmm. um, are they able, if they have a 10 or 14 point lead in the third quarter to close the game out? Here's the issue. It's not so much that you can't run the ball. It's that, to win these kinds of games, you got to run the ball when everybody knows you're going to run the ball. And Washington can't do that. Texas showed that. Texas plugged it up. Washington, when they knew they had to run the ball, had to get creative, had to find ways to move the ball without risking the clock. And salting away games is one of Michigan's specialties because Michigan might be – are we in an agreement, Ari, that Michigan is the best team in the country at running the ball when the other team knows you're going to run the ball? When Michigan – I say yes. I think the drive that epitome uh, – that, uh, that is the epitome of that example would be when they were up by less than a touchdown against Ohio State with eight minutes left mm-hmm. and then had the ball for six minutes or seven minutes of that final drive and they are actually built as a team to pick up three yards of carry and run the clock. Like that's literally who they are as an identity. Yeah. Um, so yes, I think that Michigan has a stark advantage of salting away the game, as you put it. And if there's 10 minutes left in the game and they're up by 10, they're going to win. Do we know the origin of that phrase salting away the game? Cause we no, say that and I don't, I don't know anything what that means the commenter. I'm sure the comment section knows everything. So I'm always intrigued uh, if they've got anything. So, uh, yeah, when you've got to run the ball, when the other team knows you have to run the ball. Salting away means to save something, often money secretly. He salted away a fortune over the years and no one ever knew. I don't love the context there. There's a lot left. There's a lot that that doesn't really that doesn't really translate. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, language and communication is about saying something and the audience accepting your defined meaning. So I think way, this is the actual thing. I think salt is a preservative, yeah? Sure. Yes. So I think it means to salt away to preserve the game away. Eh. I, I, mean, I think that's what I'm just telling you what I think it means. Yeah, but I think I think in general that's not. I don't think that that's that's what I mean. When I, I didn't go to medical that. school when you asked me all these questions. I just I don't know. <laughs> Shout like, out don't to put Google. me in a position. Don't put me in a show. position to have to be smart. I'm not one of these people. <laughs> like if I went on Jeopardy, I don't think I would get one question right. I have one of my life goals is to be on Jeopardy. I've taken the you Jeopardy be, quiz. Like, how do you do on the Jeopardy quiz? They don't tell you. They don't tell you. All I know is you I've never gotten you a did? call. Not very good. It's really hard. It's way harder than the show. I've taken the Jeopardy quiz probably five or six times to try and get on the show. And I don't think, I mean, it, it is so hard. It is yeah. so, so hard. Uh, here are your like, categories today on Jeopardy. Uh, <laughs> 16th century literature. Well, the thing is, regular uh, Jeopardy, I probably get more than half the clues correct. Like, I am very good at trivia and this kinds of stuff. Like, I know a lot about random crap. But the quizzes, like the test to get on Jeopardy is 100 times harder than an episode of Jeopardy. Like, it's not even close. So, I listen, I'm looking commenters up, know a lot, but they can't take me in trivia. In trivia, it's ball game. 16th century pop culture. <laughs> Prehistoric ge- geography. Mm-hmm. 
Shout out to Pangea. How about that? Left wing politics before the Civil War. <laughs> it's like all these questions. Like, I don't know anything about. I was talking to my wife about this in bed the other night before we went to sleep. I don't know anything about anything. Like, I, keep, I feel like. Let's keep this conversation PGR. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially not that category. Uh, I I, uh, I I don't know. Like I know what Watergate is. I don't know what happened. It was like, the hotel, and they were they were uh, stealing records from their uh, 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 yeah uh, political rivals. They did it at a hotel. There's no gate involved. It's just Watergate was the hotel in DC. <laughs> no, I, under, I I just don't know. Like I don't understand why the records were in the hotel or what the importance of it all was. Like, I know, I believe their offices were in the hotel. Yeah. I know basic historical facts. I don't understand like main, I don't know anything about politics. I don't understand anything (laughs) about, you know, the Senate and all that stuff. Like I, I would fail like social. All right. How many, I'm scared to ask this question. I have two questions for you. One, how many representatives are there in America? No idea. And how many senators are there in America? No shot. Not in a million years, couldn't tell you those. 100 questions. senators, 435 representatives. No shot. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I'm not, uh, you know, people hate me, I guess, for this, but like, not a politics guy. Uh, <laughs> I have no, I have no interest in it. And I know it's a very I'm not important passionate time about in our politics, country. But I, but I appreciate the sociological exercise of it. Do you know what I don't like about politics? And it also relates to college football. Um, that they are and trying I, to get reelected and not actually taking care of their constituents because well, that's the, what I the cons- <laughs> yeah yeah the the <laughs> corruption and or greed that uh, is involved <laughs> in the politicians making more money than their salary would indicate they should is certainly <laughs> one of those. But um, I have a really hard time um, with people already thinking something mm-hmm. and being unable to hear the other side of an argument and change mm-hmm. their mind. And it happens that in college, like college football. football. Yeah. It happens in politics. <laughs> and it's like you watch the show that you is saying the thing that you already agree with. Mm-hmm. And there's no exercise whatsoever from anybody in the attempt to become fully versed in the topic that they're discussing in order to have a, a personal thought generated on their own without seeing what they think on TikTok or on CNN or, or Fox News. Like, that's what I can't stand about it. And (laughs) I think the reason why a lot of people don't like me is because I don't live by that. Like, I don't have a team. I don't have a side. I just try my best to tell the truth. And people want a slant to everything. And I literally don't have one. And we fans in general from this sport, like the national people who have been doing this a long time and you sort of understand it and don't really have a team. Like, I appreciate the sport. And I think a lot of fans like can't really wrap their head around that in some ways. And I think there's a disconnect too, because sometimes we aren't good at seeing how fans see the sport and fans aren't good at seeing how people who consume the sport as a whole see the sport sometimes. So there can be a little bit of disconnect there in just how we, people only want to read what they already think. And if they, if they didn't read what they already think, then the author hates their favorite team or Mm -hmm. is a moron. Yeah. There's no, there's no studying involved or learning. Um, and, uh, Anyway, uh, our producer heard me say politics. I was like, no, God, no, no, go back to the show. Or let's go back to the show. Last thing, the last reason for losing. Sorry, Cam, please forgive me. I, I, I know that It is that, an election that is year as of because, about oh, three God, days ago. No, let's get back to the, I just saw that. Oh, God, please, let's get back to the show. Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, Michigan's last reason for losing is lack of explosiveness. Yeah. They have 121 explosive plays this year. 
Um, 33rd nationally. Alabama's big plays were contextualized. They had a gadget play. Um, Roman Wilson's 29-yard tipped ball catch. And um, I think one of the most explosive plays in the entire game was a swing route um, to a wide-open Blake Corum in the they were kill- They were killing Bama on that flood leak concept where they'd go trips left, flood everybody over, and then just leak Corum out. I mean, they ran that at least twice, maybe three times in that game. Uh, they ran that on the touchdown play uh, late in the game, and then they had a couple of... Now, the gadget play, the throwback to McCarthy with the crazy one-handed catch, I mean, that was one of their most explosive plays of the game, and it was and almost it was a complete disaster. First, yeah. <laughs> almost a complete disaster. The most disaster. explosive, impressive catch of the entire game was J.J. McCarthy catching a pass nine yeah. yards behind the line of scrimmage. Yeah, so, like, it's... I mean, that play... Like, watching that, it felt like it was happening in slow motion. I was like... What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, Cam Molina was like, oh, God, no, oh, God, no. Then um, listen, Michigan does have explosive plays. I think the way that we should contextualize this isn't really so much statistically. It's about um, they don't have Romo Dunze. They don't have Jalen Polk. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have the skill position players, at least on the outside, to do things that Washington receivers do. And that is maybe helped them be more in control of games you know, take their time, move the ball efficiently and and do that. But they're not the type of team. Like if, if Washington gets rolling in a quarter, the way that they got rolling in the third quarter of the Texas game, I have a hard time imagining that Michigan's offense is going to be able to keep up with that. So I think that explosiveness and ball management um, are kind of counterproductive. And I think Michigan probably wants to be more in control. So I don't know how to view this. Like you want to have great receivers, but I think Michigan will take it six yards a pop down the field too, and yeah. be perfectly fine with it. Because every Unless time they get that Michigan down by has the ball, early. Is, if Michigan has the ball, Washington doesn't. So I think that's also a good defense. Um, there is this idea because Washington is so explosive, and because their offense gets all this attention, that their defense is like not good. It's a good defense. Their DBs are not elite, but their front seven is very strong, um, and they've played their best in big games. And one of the coaches that I talked to, I don't think it's in the story, but just said, hey, if Washington gets up 10-0, 14-0, they're good enough to choke out Michigan because Michigan is not built to come from behind. And that is a tough spot to be. Um, so I think I, I think you might see Washington sort of put that in their game plan because that's a that's an easy way to to get Washington out of their – I mean, to get Michigan out of their game plan pretty quick. If you jump on them early and all of a sudden you got this pressure and I'd have to think about it, how many times besides the TCU game last year has Michigan been in that spot? How many times have they been down double digits? I don't think they've been double down double digits all year. Yeah, I don't think that that's happened. That's a new place for them to be. That's not a tight game. That's a we have to play perfect. They were losing to Alabama at halftime. I think it was the first time all year they were losing at halftime. Mm, no, I thought they were tied. No, they were winning no. at halftime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were winning. They were no, down they 7 were, nothing. No, early. when they were down 20 to 13, it was the first time in the third quarter they faced a deficit. Okay, yeah. So that's a there's, new place to be. There was a stat like that, yeah. But yeah, if it's touchdown, punt, touchdown, uh, <laughs> uh, you're going to have to change some stuff. Yeah, that's well, a that's, place that's to be. whether or not you think that happens, I think decides which side you're betting. Yeah. Like, do yeah. you think that's going to happen? I think, and we're going to get to picks at the end of this, but why don't we go to the next segment here, Dave? You and Bruce Feldman did a lot of work on this coaching confidential, and if you're unaware of what that means or haven't read it yet, I, su- I suggest that you go to The Athletic and read it. It's a very good way to get insight into a game that um, 
you want to watch by hearing what coaches, some who have faced these teams, have to say. Now, we didn't identify the coaches who said them. All because who have we faced want these teams. Honest. Oh, all of them have? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we want people to speak freely and open and honestly. And the only way to do that is to grant uh, anonymity. And we did so. So why don't we just go through some of this? Like, mm-hmm. um, I'll let you steer the ship here since you did the story and then we can talk about it. Yeah. So I think as I referenced before, every coach we talked to was just like wowed by Penix. And obviously, because Michael Penix has played in the Big Ten, a lot of the Big Ten coaches um, that face Michigan this year also have some familiarity with Penix, um, you know, in the portal or at Indiana. They're not, you know, and he's been around forever. So they're, you know, he's not a guy that people haven't seen. They're very well aware of him. And everybody just raved about him and the receiving. Uh, this was a, a, a coach that I, that I talked to said, if you watch the film when the balls, and you watch when the balls release, the receiver isn't open. He throws guys open. He throws with a bunch of trust. And I told our guys, we have to stay in phase with them. That basically just means get your hand on their hip, be ready to defend the entire game all the way down the field. There won't be indicators that the ball is coming. The receivers are very good at looking back. And whenever DB coaches talk about defending, you talk about playing the hands. It's, well, if guys' hands are up, then you know the ball's coming. And really, really good receivers don't put their hands up until the last possible time because it tells the DB the ball's coming. And that's some of the indicators that you're talking about. So um, Washington, man, just experience, experience, experience. So. That's a big one. Somebody just said in the chat here, and I need to log back in so I can like put the comments up too. <laughs> Cam's got a lot going on, making sure we don't tell people who to vote for in the next election. <laughs> but um, he said all Washington has uh, is Penix hype and three NFL receivers and an awful defense. Come on, it's like a, a the defense is not point, awful. If you if you think if you think Washington's defense not is awful, what I am even like them. talking about. But like, yeah, at a certain point, production replaces hype. Like it's not hype anymore. Did you watch? Well, the and like if semifinal? we're talking about if we're talking about Washington hype, I mean, is this August? Have you watched? Yeah, like, have you been watching Washington? There's have like we been seeing why there's two undefeated games teams as left? context. Yeah. yeah, and who even considered UW as a serious contender? All these bandwagoners are going crazy. Is it Nobody, a bandwagon it or is it a team that's fourteen? I mean, there was a UW bandwagon before the year started. I wasn't on it. I wasn't. I you were more on it than I was, but slightly. Um, but I I thought they'd win like ten or eleven. And we're at the point in the season now, which is the national title game, <laughs> where <laughs> like like you can't yeah, hype I mean, your way to the title. You got to actually hype. win. They're yeah. in the championship, so yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so why don't we move on now to Odunze? Um, obviously, he there. I've seen some people on Twitter say that they think he's better than Marvin Harrison. I don't know no. that I would go that way. I he's think not. Players, I think the production's but, there, and he's listen. If you put Marvin Harrison in a with a better quarterback in perhaps a more creative offense. I think that conversation would change in a hurry. Listen, they're both great players. I don't say that to to take anything away from Romo Dunze. They're both unbelievable players, but I am of the mind that Marvin Harrison is one of the best receiving prospects in terms of playing the position. Like he's not gonna just burn you, but in terms of getting not open, which hands. I which yeah, is the most the important game. thing. Can you get open? This is the most important thing I think for NFL receivers because everybody's fast. Like, there's a couple Tyreeks out there that just, like, are ridiculous. Obviously, Marvin Harris is not that guy. But if you can get open and you catch it and you catch contested balls, you will have a long NFL career. And Marvin Harrison, in terms of route running, is about as good as I've seen in a long time. And the size and the body makeup. and All that stuff. 
all and that where stuff. he comes from, all that stuff is going to be fine. So anyway, but uh, all that here's the quote, Dave. I know yes. Dune say he's just different. His body control and the way he and Penix are synced up, whether it's going to be a back shoulder or, or over the top, they're just in such a rhythm. And that is, I think, a pretty strong quote. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean the guy has been they've been doing it all year. I mean, I know it's I guess it's just the hype machine, but uh that hype machine uh had a bunch of good throws and catches against Texas the other night. So, shout out to the hype machine. Okay. So, now we are going to go into more bigger picture stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to read some of the quotes on the approach to defending Washington. Um I would try to force them to hand the ball off, but they will throw the ball in man with two high safeties or if you drop eight, we'll still dice you up. Um another assistant said They'll throw the ball when they shouldn't throw the ball. I think their game management is suspect, but they find ways to win. I don't know that I agree with that. I think they're throwing it is they're running it because their play design is so beautiful that even in running situations when they throw the ball, they complete high high. But percentage. if you could just hand it off and run it, you'd like to. No, I mean I guess, but they are they <laughs> they throw it in they throw it in running situations all the time, and the play designs are so beautiful it works the yeah. exact way that you hoped that a successful running play would. Um, Their offensive tackles, to me, are incredible. If you're going to beat them, I think it's going to be in the interior, but you got to be willing to take chances. Uh, last two here. Yeah, blitzing. If I'm Michigan, I'm utilizing a lot of disguises in my coverage. Pre-snap, I want Michael to see cover two, but really I'm in cover three. I want him to see man at snap, but we're going to be in cover three, cover four. You press those corners, you disguise, and you send pressure. That's what Arizona State did. They were in his head a little bit. And if you watch that game... No they touchdowns. Were, there picks. was nothing going on there. And I think the reason he didn't win the Heisman, even though now with more context, I think it was clear that he should have. Uh, Byron Murphy II beat his man so many times, but Penix would sidestep and get the ball out. He is such a good player. Texas couldn't just play man. And then when they did cover their guys perfectly, they didn't play the ball. That's where Michigan will be probably at an advantage because their DBs play the ball better. And I think the most infuriating thing about Washington, if you're a, a fan or a player on the other team, is they're – they constantly complete passes on plays that look dead. Yeah. Plays that are covered, plays that look are going to be uh, Perfect negative coverage plays or broken matter. plays. They always complete, and their receivers always catch it. So what are your thoughts on these quotes that you got? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at some of these, some of the contested catches that those guys were making, specifically Odunze, down the field in that game, where it's just like, I mean, we talked about indicators earlier. I mean, that was a huge part of it is it looks like there's no chance that they complete it and it's not even close to being dropped. Like he catches it in like it's, you know, August and there's no defense. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. They're so fun to watch. Okay. So now we'll go to Michigan on offense on the run game. Michigan should just run it down their throats and just keep Penix off the field. I don't think there are many teams in football that are patient enough running the football, but Michigan is. They keep proving that. They keep running it at you. No one else in the Pac-12 will do that. You mentioned this earlier in the show. If Texas would have Monday night, they probably would have been better off. Washington ranks 86th nationally in in yards per carry. Mm -hmm. Um, Approach to defending Michigan. Um, They put everybody up on the line and make the quarterback think a little bit. Then he'll drop into a coverage. And you don't know if there's a play, if the play is owner man, he can get creative with disguising. Um, they have explosive playmakers, but chunk plays, question mark. J.J. McCarthy ain't that guy. I don't know what Harbaugh is talking about. He's out of his mind. If you're freaking Kyle Shanahan, you might like him. But in college football, I don't know if he's going to get the job done. Um, same thing with Quinn. 
yours, that is, catching strays in this story, I guess, huh, Dave? Yeah, For him bit. to be as highly ranked as a recruit as he was, I'm she sure does seem to disappear when the lights get bright. You gotta be that dude. And if you can keep McCarthy guessing, I think that's what they did to yours. Even when it's a 12-yard line in the last two plays of the game, he was mugged up and made him throw hot. Quinn was throwing fade balls the entire game because he did not know what the pressure was. What did Quinn do? Listen, if you look at that, Quinn, if you go watch that game, so, you know, if you're talking about a hot, when you're talking about being mugged up, that's just where they got like eight or nine guys standing at the line. Yeah. don't know who's coming. And talking about a hot pressure is basically, we don't have enough bodies to block this or one guy coming unblocked. And if that happens, the ball's got to come out. Obviously, you can't take a sack in that situation. So Quinn's not sure. And he's not really seeing well what's in front of him. But he's saying, I got Mitchell on the outside. I'm just going to throw it up. Okay, that might work. Or you could find an open receiver and throw a more high percentage ball where you have an open receiver and it's, you know, pitch and catch. And so if you can confuse a guy, then his processing changes. And I know, but so, JJ McCarthy is proven, if nothing else, to be a good processor, right? Probably. Interesting. You can make it harder on these guys to process. Yeah. And lastly, um, one on JJ McCarthy. JJ hadn't played that well in a long time, but he played really well against Alabama. I was more scared about him on the move than in the pocket. We tried to keep him in the pocket. He is very fast and he throws the ball very well on the run. Mm-hmm. So that was a that was a coach that played against him. So um, yeah, I think that that's a lot of context. Certainly, think that if you have not read the story, it would be really entertaining for you to go read it. It's on the athletic. I agree. Uh, Dave Ubbin and Bruce Feldman rely on me to get them subs, and I'm trying to do that for them. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, go read it on the athletic. If you're not subscribed, I promise you, if you subscribe, you won't you won't regret it. Um, okay, lastly, segment three, the final. The final countdown. Can you get copyright if you like sing a song poorly? No, it's only audio. I think you could do that as long as you want, because that's how you can play like covers on YouTube and stuff. There's like the full cover bands and stuff countdown. on YouTube. Okay. We're going to pick the game here. Michigan yeah. is laying four and a half points. Over under. Oh, also. The line is presented by BetMGM, and the over/under is fifty-five and a half. What is your like thought on Thursday, January fourth, heading into the game? I feel pretty good about Washington and the points. I would put a little sprinkle on Washington money line. I think they can win this game. I think if it comes down to it, if if one of these teams has a four-point lead and takes over with two thirty left on their own twenty. I like Washington. I've been big. The funniest thing to me is I have routinely picked against Michigan because they always play in these big games against teams that have more talent than them. I didn't pick against them against Ohio State or Penn State. I don't remember what I picked. I think I might have picked them to beat Ohio State. I picked against Um, them in Alabama, but begrudgingly. I was adamant that they would lose to Alabama. I could not have been wronger uh, mm-hmm. doing that game. I mean, and, and now, and now, it wasn't what? like they just killed them. I, I mean, thought come on, Alabama now. was going to eat their lunch, dude. I didn't. I thought Bama would win. I didn't think they were going to eat their yeah. lunch. I was wrong about that game, mm-hmm. and I, I think I picked them to win on the show because the gambling line was too good to be true, and it turned out that it was. Mm-hmm. 
Um, also, too, if you gambled on that game and uh, stuck around in the live betting mechanism when Alabama was winning 20 to 13 late in the game, you could have gotten Michigan plus 550, which would have covered your initial bet and then even profited depending on whether or not you hedged. Um, some people did. Some people are smart. You know, if you didn't, I'm sorry to hear that. JJ McCarthy is 26 and one as a starter. And I think I saw something from a Michigan fan site that said that's the best record of any quarterback of the last 20 years. Here's a question I, for you briefly. Can I just say how many of those 26 wins would you say that JJ McCarthy is chiefly responsible for? Zero. All right. Just asking. <laughs> Ugh, I don't know, man. I'd give like, him a I, I, I mean, I. No, listen, no, no, no. I'm talking about the game. Oh. Chiefly responsible. The thing that Michigan has done so well chiefly has is okay. A, chiefly is a difficult description. What is a chiefly he was responsible? A big re- he was a big reason why they beat Alabama. That's just he true. was. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he he played well. And you know, winning games doesn't necessarily mean you have to, you know, be Cam Newton and just take over a game. Like he makes the plays that he needs to make in front of him to mm-hmm. keep his team on schedule and to make. I mean, that final drive where they tied it at twenty was a masterful drive. I don't know if there's any individual play that J.J. McCarthy is like, holy crap, this guy is incredible. But I think the incredible thing is the consistency and the cool that he keeps in those high leverage moments. So mm-hmm. um, chiefly responsible, maybe I'll give him a few. But um, winning games, uh, I think, is a quarterback stat at times. And he deserves, I mean, mm. listen, he played a lot of crappy Big Ten teams too. So um, a lot of, I mean, not very good quarterbacks in the Big Ten that play for big-time programs um, have really good win-loss records. But I have a hard time with this because I can see it going both ways. I can, too. Um, I think that I could see Michigan just completely physically owning the game the way they did against Alabama, running the ball and winning by seven points in a very highly contested, fun game. Um, I also could see a world where Michigan is completely and utterly unable to keep up with what Washington does offensively. I can see. It's um, one of the reasons and, why I love this game. This is a very exciting. And I don't really <laughs> know which way to err. So I think I'm going to do this. Um, I think I'm going to pick Washington and the points, mm-hmm. but I think Michigan will win by less than four and a half. Is that a good compromise? You just wanted to get into quadruple overtime. So get a two point yeah. conversion contest. Then if that happens, we also get the over under uh, <laughs> over. Not necessarily. I have not a really, I have a really hard time. I always said, I came into this game thinking, like, I cannot pick against Michigan anymore. They humiliate me repeatedly. Um, and I've I been picking pick against Washington more than I've been picking against uh And I had a really weird Michigan. scenario because, like, I picked Washington. I mean, I'm sorry, I picked Michigan on the podcast last week, but I bet mm-hmm. against them a lot of money. Um, so I didn't know. I, I was wrong. Um, yeah. I did hedge and luckily got out of it a little bit. But this one, I don't know. I'm going to the game, so I'm not going to bet it. But I do yeah. think... Um, I don't know what side I would like. So I think in this scenario, getting four and a half points is a nice little situation. I just don't know if Michigan can cover them. Um, I don't know if Washington can stop Michigan. I think it's going to be a really good game. Me too. And the, it's really hard to pick games where the styles are this contrasting too, which is what Yeah, and I think the over-under is probably about right because the way Michigan plays will limit. I think, there's gonna, I think the efficiency is going to be high, but because of the way Michigan plays, I think it'll be a limited possession type of game. So I think that over-under number is kind of unpredictable and it looks about right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't see a lot of value in general. I just think Washington being able to keep it close and possibly win makes it makes a lot of sense to me. So Yeah. Um, also, too, if you're alive better, 
if Michigan goes up seven nothing early, you might be able to get two or three to one on Washington early on yeah, in the game. Um, that that's always an attractive thing too when you can get some value close into the game. So, lastly, do you have an X factor for this for this for each team for this game? Did you look at this? Yeah, I mean, uh, how about Jack Westover for Washington? Right, uh, it's a guy that all those receivers get a lot of pub. But Mr. Ugly number 37, I don't know if we can get a petition before the game to get him to change the number. It's not as bad as Devin Brown wearing number three. I know he's Devin like, Brown wears 33. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He, he's like a, he's like Sammy Baugh's like eighth cousin or something. What is it? It's Yeah, there's whatever, a connection to whatever somebody is, who played football care. in black and at white some TV point, era. Somebody's yeah. got to step in and just be like, son. Stop. You're killing yourself here. <laughs> stop it. Please stop it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway, not a huge fan of wearing number 37 and catching passes, but hey. 37 uh, is so less of an eyesore than 33 at quarterback. It's not even a debate. It's not, but it's still not great. I think we can all agree, but he's my guy. Uh, I think Jack Westover can be a guy that, that makes a, a big impact there. Uh, as far, am I allowed to pick two tight ends as my X factors? Go Colson ahead, Loveland? bud. It's your world. Colson Loveland, I love what we've seen from him. He's made some really big catches. Uh, I think there's a time for him. I think getting in one-on-one with some of these linebackers, I think he can, he can make some things happen. Um, but, uh, he, he's rocking the number 18. I love that. Shout out to Jermaine Gresham. 18's a, 18's a really underrated tight end number. I feel like. I just like single digits on big bodies. Yeah, um, like like a defensive end who wears number three or one or seven or something, I think looks sick. How would you feel if Tavondre um, Sweat was rocking number zero? I don't love zero to begin with. <laughs> uh, I don't like it All on right, anybody. Dion. Uh, I, I just don't like the way it looks. I think the the double digits like 33, 44, 55 are great linebacker numbers. Yeah, but I also think like the number six for a linebacker savage, too. Yeah, um, I don't think that I think we're. Our childhood had a lot of quarterbacks with double digits. I think that every quarterback should be a single digit. And then I think 88 is a great receiver number. Um, I think 44 or 33 are great running back numbers. Um, And the number 21 used to be the coolest number you can wear. I don't think it's great um, on anybody at any position. So those are my number takes. (laughs) Uh, I like the the, uh, teen receiver numbers. I'm a big fan of that. Uh, and then '80s, I feel like the '80s as receiver numbers have kind of gone out of style. We got to bring that back. Bring I think back. single digits for receivers, like Stephon Diggs wears 14. Like I think mm-hmm. that's just like an odd looking number for somebody who plays. No, the game I love it. I'm into does. it. I'm into. I it. think of like old statue quarterbacks, like when I think about number 14. <laughs> um, but everybody's got their preference. When I when I and when I played NCAA and I created a character, the defender was always 33. And my offensive player was always a single digit number. I think six and five and three and nine are very under digit numbers. Like the I always created myself, maybe a little taller, number twelve, with great passing stats, but like eighty one speed, where we can make some things happen. I'm not a running quarterback, but if you test me, I'll make some things happen. When this game comes out, guys, we're gonna we're gonna get something going because yeah, we gotta do I something. I didn't really ever do the create your own or build a dynasty. I just was obsessed with playing people online and talking shit into the headset. So that I was, do all of the above. Yeah. 
So, okay, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening to the latest edition of Until Saturday. Be sure you're subscribed to the Until Saturday podcast feed wherever you listen to podcasts so that you'll be notified when we publish the latest episodes. We'll be back on Sunday for a special Last Thoughts edition of Until Saturday where we'll impart some of our final thoughts heading into Monday's game. I'm going to be in Houston. Um, A lot of people from the athletic team will also be there. Chris Fanini, Max Olson, Bruce Feldman. Um, Our beat writers will be there. Uh, Austin Meek and um, Kenny. Nope. Love that guy. (laughs) Love that guy. Kennington Smith, the third, will be there. Got a lot coming for you. Please call the Until Saturday phone line, 316-462-9852. Again, that is 316-462-9852. Leave voicemails um, coming into the game. I think we're going to try to squeeze a few of those in on Sunday, so be sure to do so. Um, But if not, we will be doing them off into the offseason. So uh, we will tweet out a reminder throughout the weekend as a reminder to – Call that number, and you can also text it, but we want the voicemails more. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you can get all of our live streams, and subscribe to the Until Saturday newsletter, the link that gets you all of our coverage delivered directly to your inbox. For Ari Wasserman, he's David Ubbin. Thank you for listening to the latest edition of Until Saturday. We will catch you on Sunday. And bring back the turnover. We're still doing this, everyone.